0: Welcome to another very cool episode of uh, Topic Discuss. It's going to be a deep dive and a deep discussion into eternal life and what immortality might mean. We're going to dive into Emerald Tablets, what the Emerald Tablets were when they were discovered, the Rosetta Stone, Osiris, and Horus, and Isis, and Set, and Hermes. Greek tradition, Egyptian tradition, the book of Daniel, Um, a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, buckle up, buttercups. You're going to enjoy another episode of Topic Discuss. Hi, viewers. It's really good to see you. Um, I always look forward to spending time with you, and I hope that you'll stay with us through the entire episode today. It is very interesting and uh, somewhat difficult to, to get my mind around anyway, and it is the concept of eternal life. And what, what we think about when we refer to eternal life, for some of us, eternal life relates to a religious background that we may be a part of. Um, for others, it might mean something like reincarnation or resurrection or a number of other kind of philosophical ideas. So when I think about this, I would like to start with really thinking about um, my parents and their dogs, right? My, my parents have these two little dachshunds that they love and adore, and they're get, those dachshunds are getting really old and they're going to die. Now, I have a feeling that those dogs don't really know that they're old and that they're dying. And I don't know that they care really if they're going to die. But my parents do. My parents care about when these dogs are going to die and the loss that it will will ensue because of that. So, There are other animals in the animal kingdom that are aware of their demise, their death, um, to some degree, like elephants and the fact that they will take their sick and their dying to a certain location and kind of create a graveyard for their dead. But humans have a unique capability to comprehend their own mortality, and so Mortality, Immortality, Eternal Life, and Resurrection is going to be our topic for today. And in order to really start this concept and and think through why human beings have a need to obtain immortality or maintain their mortality, we'll start with the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the earliest human writings that we have. Um, predates many civilizations. Um, there are experts that understand the the Epic of Gilgamesh better than I do. But the point that I want to bring out regarding the Epic of Gilgamesh is that Gilgamesh, who was this warrior, myth- mythological, you know, uh, king, um, who had a, a companion, a friend, a buddy, whose name was Enkidu and interestingly enough when enkidu died in the story again um this concept of death and immortality um when enkidu died gilgamesh was was devastated and you know cried over enkidu for days um and this is a and and then really what that did to um to Gilgamesh was made him aware of his own mortality made him aware of the fact that he is getting older I mean not only did he lose his companion but he's a beginning he understands he is also going to die his time is limited and all the adventuring that he was able to do is waning and waxing because he's now um you know he realizes he's getting older and he realizes he's going to die and um, this is one of the challenges of the human species really um, is the reality that we are aware of our own mortality we're conscious of the fact that we are aging and that we will eventually die Um, so one of the stories that kind of came out or legends i think regarding the epic of gilgamesh and the fact that Enkidu had died is Gilgamesh then seeks eternal life or a way to maintain his life eternally. This is where we get the legend and the story of the Sorcerer's Stone. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the Sorcerer's Stone. We're going to have to talk about alchemy if we're going to talk about the elixir of life and the Sorcerer's Stone. We're going to talk about Osiris and the Osiris myth. Hermes in Greek, Um in the in the Greek pantheon and who Hermes was or Mercury, we're going to talk about um, Thoth in Egyptian, um, in in the Egyptian pantheon. We're also going to dive into Hermes uh, Trismegistus, who is a character that I have worked towards studying for this episode. So forgive me for my lack of knowledge. I'd love to interview some people. Um, like Mr. Horowitz and others who are um, true hermetic philosophers who can teach. Anyway, um, and we'll dive into all of those things in this episode, so please stay tuned. And as we get ready to de- dive, dive deep into these concepts, I'd like you to make sure you subscribe, you like, hit your little ringer so that you know when my episodes are up for you to watch. It's kind of like your TV guide, if you want to think of it that way. Um, The other thing I just want to say is uh, it does help the algorithm when you watch an entire episode. And if there's something I need to do to make it more interesting for you to watch through the whole episode, give me that feedback. So let's get into it. Um, Hermetic philosophies, eternal life, resurrection, and reincarnation. Here we go. So back to the story of Gilgamesh and Kidu and the Sorcerer's Stone, this elixir of life, um, and, and I've never really been able to peel back what this elixir of life is, but it is the Sorcerer's Stone. Some would say it's knowledge and wisdom that, that will help us maintain uh, immortality or keep us alive. Um, but ultimately, there is a quest in the human species to maintain their youth Maintain mortality and really live on forever. So, one of the things that is important to recognize as um, we we explore these different ideas and philosophies is to understand the deep thread that um, exists through cultures and times. You know, um, so for example, when we look at the Book of Daniel. <laughs> Uh, Chapters 8, 9, and 10, I think. Derek uh, Lambert maybe can correct me on this if he's watching. But those chapters are really talking about um, the fact that Greece became this great superpower across the the globe. And Grecian kings, namely Alexander the Great, conquered Jerusalem, Egypt, uh, Persia, and even parts of India. And so that happened around 300 BC. So when we think about our timelines and we think about um, uh, the different religious writings of the time in Egypt and and in in Jerusalem and other areas of the Levant and um, the Middle East, we have to layer in the fact that Alexander the Great was conquering each of these areas at this time. And it really began something called the Hellenistic period and Hellenistic period or Helen means Greek. Um, And so Alexander the Great, through this really incredible story, if you want to read more about Alexander the Great, then um, Plutarch is, Plutarch is really the the historian that I've used in um, studying Alexander the Great, but there are others as well. And remember that Plutarch and other historians are writing about Alexander the Great a 100 years after his death. And so we get a little bit of mythology and legend built in to, um, you know, to the, this figure, Alexander the Great. But what we do know is that Alexander the Great did a great deal of conquering from his home um, empire of Macedonia and began to conquer across the known world. And when he, when he did this and his armed forces did this, there was you know, just this, this lust for power and conquering that Alexander the Great had. And as he did that, we, we have to remember that, that the Greeks conquering Jerusalem and Egypt and you know, these other parts of the Middle East resulted in Greek culture infusing within Jerusalem and within Egypt. Um, Hellenistic culture, Hellenistic ideas. The Jews in Jerusalem, Judah, openly welcomed, according to to you know some of these historical accounts. But for all intents and purposes, uh, we'll we'll assume that they openly welcomed Alexander the Great. Um, the high priest did, and as a result, they somewhat the Jews adopted these Grecian ideas, partly because, well, we'll get into that a little bit later after Alexander the Great um, dies. But but I, I'm trying to drive home the point that Greek ideas and Greek culture, their pantheon, including Zeus and Hermes and, and others, um, really uh, infused into these cultures, and then and there, therefore you have to also assume Greek or Hellenistic ideas and culture were infused into their religious texts and writings, okay? So let's just use Egypt, for example. Um, you know, Egypt was conquered by Alexander the Great, and when Alexander the Great died um, early, and I think unexpectedly to some, he had a strange disease that we don't really know about what causes death today, but the four great generals, and in the book of Daniels, these four generals are named the four winds of the earth take over. Um, And uh, these four Kings were, well, they were, uh, they were generals or commanders, if you will, in Alexander the great's army. And they each kind of divided the kingdom up or, the Greek Empire up into four north, south, east, west um, empires, and Ptolemy uh, became the leader. One Ptolemy was one of Alexander the Great's generals. In fact, probably his most prolific general, and Ptolemy um, led Egypt. So again, this is around 300, but you know, BC. I'm being very rough in the timeline. But think about what that means. So now Egypt, who has been led by by pharaohs—a country or a, a nation that has been led by pharaohs in a certain way and religion for for centuries—is now being led by a Greek conqueror, Ptolemy, the, the a commander, a general of, of Alexander the Great. So when we think of when I when I think about that, I, I, it really makes me curious about how much of the this period of time really began to influence religious thought um, amongst the Jews, amongst the Egyptians and others that had been conquered by Alexander the Great and his subsequent, you know, his subsequent generals. And so when you fast forward to the emerald tablets and we find these emerald tablets, so the emerald tablets are, the emerald tablets are part of the, um, are found much later there it's probably the 8th century but the emerald tablets were supposedly written by this new uh godlike fig- figure a a Moses or Enoch like figure um named Hermes Trismegistus and who's who's this figure you know this figure is mythological um no different than Thoth Toth and Hermes so Let's look at who Hermes and Toth were. So Hermes was a God in the Greek pantheon that evolved over time. By the time the Greeks, um, took over or conquered Egypt, Hermes was, you know, this God of wisdom, a God of mischief too, the messenger God between the underworld and, um, or between the gods and the underworld and, um, and a messenger God, as we see in, um, his little wings on his shoes or on his hat, um, kind of the God of the farmer and the, and the, and, um, the Romans term for him is, is, uh, Mercury and the planet named Mercury is the closest to the sun. So, so when the Greeks you know, kind of begin to infuse their culture. They're led by Grecian kings in the Ptolemaic period, the Ptolemaic Egyptian period. Um, in fact, every successor after Ptolemy were all named Ptolemy. They're like, I don't know, 13, 12 or 13 Ptolemies. I don't know why, but this just created something called the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. And as a result, um, you can see a blending between the god Toth and the god um Hermes into this new god or this new prophet or whatever you want to call it, Hermes Trismegistus. And um, so let's talk about Toth for a second. Toth was an Egyptian god who was a, um, the god of science, the god of math, the god of medicine, if you will, magic and writing. So the scholars who were writing in Egypt who knew how to write kind of had Toth as one of their deities. In fact, Toth is portrayed with an ibis beak or an ibis head, which is an ibis is a bird with like a beak that's shaped like a crescent moon. Toth for a long time was the god of the moon. And really what that meant was that um, the Egyptians were beginning early to understand the moon cycles, the sun cycles, and how to tell time. And by telling time and the seasons, they... Could predict, you know, when to grow crop, when the Nile would flood, etc. And that really became kind of a scientific endeavor that they attributed to Toth. So, so Toth is combined with Hermes over a period of centuries, really, and this new figure, Hermes Tristomestus, comes into play and um, Hermetic uh, philosophy. So this gets us to the ninth eighth or ninth century it's the islamic tradition that where the emerald tablets come from and so the emerald tablets are very interesting to me um, because when you read the emerald tablets there's a famous phrase what is above is also below Um, and there are a lot there's lots of speculation about what that phrase means from these emerald tablets What it is that is above is as it is below. But remember that these are Latin and Greek. The original emerald tablets were found written in Arabic. And when you look at the Arabic translation, and this is my own, probably my own interpretation, because you could say that what it is that is above is also below, um, you know, could be interpreted as the sun, the moon, the stars. Influence the those things that are below, which is us, the earth, the water, the crop. But remember that the Emerald Tablets are really um, a source of Hermetic and secret knowledge that this Hermes Trismestus had written, and as he's his purpose of writing it is to teach us how to do a few things, magical things like. Um, the Sorcerer's Stone, the Elixir of Life, living forever, immortality, reincarnation, and how to enact these things based upon myths of the past, like uh, the Osiris myth. Uh, so let's talk about the Osiris myth. I don't want to get I don't want to get off track about um, that before we move forward. The Osiris myth is an ancient egyptian myth about a god named osiris and his brother set osiris and set um, are fight over the throne and set kills osiris and then and by the way you'll see this scene in book of abraham if you are a member of the lds church you will also see this depicted in the book of the dead Um, but basically Osiris dies and lays upon this couch as a, you know, as a dead person, Osiris, and, um, or a dead god. And then his wife Isis comes over and is represented as a bird you know, in these depictions and lands on, on Osiris to get pregnant from Osiris. But how does she get pregnant from Osiris to bear a new son Horus, who can now take the throne and overthrow Set. Well, uh, Isis has to use a magical incantation or special words to resurrect or rise, resurrect Osiris, at least long enough to get pregnant by him and and have their child, Horus. So the words, she gets the words from the God of Wisdom, which is Set, or no, sorry, Toth. I screwed up, Toth. So it's interesting, isn't it, that the god of wisdom and magic and medicine and science knows the right words and incantations to bring Osiris back from the dead long enough for um, Isis to come and get uh, impregnated with Horus. Uh, By the way, it's hard to talk about Egyptology Without recognizing that they had a pretty clear obsession with the phallus, and you know how important the phallus is in, in keeping, you know, uh, keeping a generation continuing on. It's through the phallus that life is created, and that you have babies and children. But the other thing too to remember about this scene is it is not just about Isis making sure that Horus that there's an heir to the throne. But in many ways, Osiris is res- resurrected or reincarnated to be Horus, right? So if you think about that, if you're a father today, and I, I think about that with myself, I live, I do live on through my boys, uh, my all of my children. Particularly, I can see traits of myself in my in my boys and in my girls, um, and so I could see how there's as the sense of. I live on or I'm resurrected or I'm reincarnated through my children. Um, But that's really what this legend is about. So Thoth is the one who um, has the magical capabilities to um, teach Isis or give her the right words to um, create Horus or to bring back Osiris so that they can create Horus. So Thoth and Hermes really become combined into this new, uh religious figure or or um kind of an occult figure i don't know what else to call hermes trisdomestis again this is not my area of expertise i also want to be clear that this is not the same thing as gnosticism um, but it is this mythical um, kind of idea that um, that science and and philosophy and religion can keep us immortal So, um, and I'll just give you another example when we talk about the combination of these gods. And I I wanna reiterate this over and over again because you can see the blending of gods even in the Old and New Testament. You can see Hellenistic influences in the late parts of the Old Testament and obviously in the New Testament. So there's lots of borrowing and um, combining and evolving and synchronizing gods Especially as different empires conquer the Middle East, um, including Jerusalem, Egypt, etc., and you we we know this is true because um, I mean, a great example of the combination of cultures is the Rosetta Stone. So the Rosetta Stone has the wedding ceremony between a Ptolemaic king and I think a northern kingdom, a Grecian brother of his, or or. Another Grecian ruler to the north who gives his daughter named Cleopatra to. So Cleopatra's not Egyptian. She is Greek. (laughs) And Elizabeth Taylor, I think, to my parents. But um, anyway, Cleopatra is um, Greek and marries an Egyptian uh, prepubescent boy. And this wedding ceremony is is um, memorialized in Greek text on a stone, Coptic text on the other side of the stone. Coptic is a language, kind of a shorthand of Egyptian, and then the Egyptian hieroglyphics on the other face of the stone. And that's how really we learn to crack the Egyptian um, hieroglyphic code. But it's, it's, it's because of the Grecian um, and, you know, this Hellenistic period that, that really so much shaped the Middle East from 300 B.C. to, um, you know, it, till I, the periods of Antioch, I think, um, one or two hundred years A.D. And I could be wrong on these dates. If I'm wrong, please comment below and clarify for me. I tell you all of that because... It's important to recognize how these influences pervade over time. So why do we have a Hellenistic text? Hermes Mestus, in an Islamic tradition, Arabic, written in Arabic. Um, and um, it's because of a this evolutionary process that occurs with humans as a human species. We've, we've developed enough intelligence that we can begin to understand nature, even evolutionary processes, and in some ways interrupt or, or, um, accelerate those processes. We do this through knowledge and science and the Islamic period in the eighth century was a significant period of scientific discovery. So as so, some cultures as science is discovered, the, those cultures kind of blend the science scientific discovery into philosoph- philosophies and into even religious um, contexts and religious art. In some cultures, though, science threatens religion, and so science gets kind of stamped out. But in this period of of the eighth century, there seemed to be. Some marrying of Islamic tradition and the uh, Hermes Tristram Mestis. But <clears throat> there's also a possibility that some of these teachings kind of would go underground or, or scientific discovery would go underground because of threats from a, uh, a power that might be a thing that might be a, a government or person or philosophy or cult that might be in power. So what's, what, are, what are in the emerald tablets? What's the sorcerer's stone? And, and what's my interpretation of this idea of what is above is the same as that which is below? And if I read the Arabic translation, it is really what it's saying is the stuff that is above is made of the same stuff that is below i think what they're talking about what what this text is talking about in the everold tablets is alchemy because the thought at the time was lower uh metals could be transmuted or transitioned or changed into higher metals and they literally referred to them as lower metals and higher metals so to me when i read that interpretation the uh, the the original uh arabic um uh translation it looks like to me they're, that they're saying the gold up here what is above you know in terms of hierarchy of metals gold is above the lead for example so the stuff that makes the gold makes up gold is the same stuff that makes up lead so therefore lead can become gold You can move from this lower state to a higher state going back to that original translation. What is um, above what is made up of the stuff that's above is the same stuff that's in below. So I see that as this alchemic tradition that you can change these lower metals uh, into a higher metal through scientific methodology through magic so as this kind of scientific idea progresses there are even some um you know renaissance scientists who read the emerald tablets um newton being one of them uh, trying to understand how metals work and and um trying to understand uh just the natural world through through the scientific method um and it and it really became, um, an evolutionary process to where we're at today with science. So the, and the other thing that's in the Emerald Tablets is the concept of immortality or eternal life or the concept of, um, the Sorcerer's Stone. And the Sorcerer's Stone is really a stone of knowledge that is going to keep you eternally alive. or going to make you immortal. And it's really, the concept is that it's knowledge that will keep you immortal. Now, it's interesting because there's some truth to this, right? Knowledge and science has made us live longer and live longer healthier. In fact, even today, there are organizations like Google and other, you know, that have gotten into healthcare who want to figure out how to extend life, human life, and extend it in a way that is prosperous and healthy not just extending life on a ventilator but extending life thriving in a thriving way um and so that really makes me think about where does this come from this need for immortality and a need for eternal life and i go back to evolution and evolutionary science and the the need to survive not just the need to survive myself but my posterity my species so when i think about the survival instincts that we have as humans that we have had in us evolutionarily for you know for for thousands of years and it is as strong as breathing and drinking our bodies know that in order to survive we need air so the need the need to breathe or if we are unable to breathe, we panic. And because there is such this deep drive and desire to, to survive and to stay alive. Same thing with food. When we're not eating food, for those who are trying to, to, to diet, there's a, there is an instinctual need to survive. And if I'm not eating, then I, I better go find food because I could be without food for months, if you think about our ancestors water is the same thing i would also suggest that um when we are conscious and aware of our mortality that same survival instinct kicks in we are designed and we have evolved to survive and survival for us um changes from that of my parents dogs right for them survival includes reproduction food air water and also a pack social sociality dogs are social because they have learned to be social in order to survive in packs that's why they're such good companions for humans they have a social nature about them but that sociality is a drive for survival so with humans So those dogs are not aware of their, their mortality. So they are not taking other steps to keep themselves alive because they don't necessarily know that they're going to, if they inevitably will die, they're just thinking, I've got to eat, I've got to run in a pack, I got to drink and um, I got to reproduce. So we have similar instincts. But the fact that we're so acutely aware of our mortality, it complicates our need for survival. Because the fact that we know we're going to die compounds our anxiety about survival. It compounds our need for immortality, our need to stay young, because we all, we know eventually it is going to end. We do this with our parents or our grandparents who might be dying or who have died. We don't want to... Let them go if they're on a ventilator and we know that there's nothing we can do to keep them alive, but we keep them with this hope that they'll stay alive and survive. Now, it's part it is very much because of our love for them, uh, which is deep and abiding, and it's part of our social need and social structure. And again, social sociality with humans is also a survival mechanism. But when it comes to our own demise and our own death and the recognition of our, our, our own immortality and that this will end, this existence and what we're going through right now is going to end. And when that happens or the fact that we are aware that that will happen, we get some anxiety. And that anxiety could produce um, a these uh, philosophical ideas of immortality and fe- trying to figure out ways to keep us alive or making up religious texts that describe a way to to be immortal or eternal forever um, and so then it reduces our anxiety Oh, I okay, if it reduces my anxiety if I think or believe that if when I die I'm going to be resurrected and exalted or, you know, perfected. Or I feel better about death if I know I'm going to be reincarnated. I don't feel so much anxiety. It relieves this survival instinct that causes anxiety in our consciousness that we will die, that we will that our existence will end. And so um, we have spent uh, centuries and thousands of years as a species trying to figure out how to reduce this anxiety. And it's because we became aware through our own evolutionary consciousness, our big brains, we became aware that we are mortal. We became aware that we're going to die, which actually added to our own survival mechanisms because the fact that so consciousness became becomes an even more powerful evolutionary trait that in our brains are so big and we're so con- that that have, have have facilitated consciousness that now we're more likely to survive than these dogs because we are aware of our mortality and we are going to do whatever it takes to extend our mortality. We are going to do whatever it takes to stay healthy uh, by exercising. Today, we know now that it's through exercising and eating right and lowering our stress. But to you know, Islamic traditions in the 8th century, it might have been alchemy that was the secret to keeping us living longer because they didn't have a very clear understanding of medicine, though they had some. Um, And it's the same thing with the Egyptians, especially the Egyptian rulers who had anxiety about their kingdoms ending and their lives ending and wanting to keep that going through either their children. So reproduction became extremely important, reproduction of a child that was your own sex, for example, so that a male is somewhat reincarnated in their own child not literally but that's kind of the feeling well my son is taking after me right i'm going to live on through my son uh so this is a this is an evolutionary instinct that we have to survive and to and the more that we're aware of our mortality the more we take steps to try to circumvent it it's a survival mechanism so here's what I'd say about that as well. It is important to respect the need we have as a human species and really any species to, to th- survive and to thrive. It, it is important that any of you listening tonight uh, feel like you have the tools and resources you need to thrive in your existence. If believing in Hermetic philosophy and the Emerald Tablets and Hermes Trismegistus helps you thrive, beautiful, go for it. If believing in a Abrahamic tradition reduces anxiety and helps you thrive, go for it. Do it. If not having a supernatural belief of any kind helps you thrive do it because at the end of the day um, we are, we have incredible capabilities as a human species to transform the the planet in a really positive way uh, and really ensure that we can leave legacies, that we can live on through our posterity and our children and through the things that we create. There are listeners who may never have children, Um, And they survive on through the things that they create, their art, um, their um, religious um, uh, motifs, or whatever else it is that they create becomes the thing that makes them immortal. So I want to be really sensitive to any of the belief systems that are out there, to anyone that is listening, because I understand and am empathetic Um, to the fact that a belief system helps reduce anxiety i also am empathetic to the fact that belief systems can also cause anxiety and um, so we need to support one another in our journeys um, of discovery in during this human experience i love you all and uh, look forward to more topics to discuss with you peace out